This is Reclaiming Jane, an Austin podcast for fans on the margins. I'm Emily Davis-Hale. And I'm Lauren Weathers. And today, we're talking about chapters 31 through 35 of Sense and Sensibility with the topic of trauma to guide our conversation. chapters 31 through 35 we had a quiet section before and then these five chapters it feels like Jane Austen said if you were looking for drama here you go served up on a silver platter yeah this definitely feels like uh the climactic point of the book at least to me who again has never read sensibility before so all of this is new to yeah. you. As, as I'm reading this, I'm I'm thinking back to like comments that Lauren has made during previous recording sessions. I'm like, oh my God, she knew what was coming. <laughs> <laughs> I have been trying very, very hard not to accidentally give any spoilers. I'm like, I know nothing. I will say nothing. I will keep this pristine. So I'm, I'm really, really interested to hear what your reactions are going to be for this episode. Oh, gosh, there's just so much that came together in these five chapters. And I'm, I'm actually a little bit worried about how we're going to fit all of it into a 30 second recap because usually it's there's a good like overarching plot thread that we can latch on to to kind of use to bring us through some semblance of a coherent 30 seconds and this time I feel like we're both going to just be cramming so much information in that we're going to lose a good amount of detail so thank god we have extra time to just expand on that afterward yeah this is gonna be a challenge mm-hmm. for sure yeah, this is a good time to emphasize that you hear our first take for these 30-second recaps. So what you hear is what we originally say. We don't record these twice. <laughs> it's just the original attempt. Yeah, I don't I don't even take I don't take anything out of the recaps in editing either. I leave exactly the 30 seconds that we have. So we have to be very careful. <laughs> yep. All right. So uh with everything that's happened in these chapters, let's begin the work of contextualizing our reactions by giving our 30 second recaps. I appreciate that begin because we certainly won't be able to fit it into 30 seconds. Certainly not. And I'm really going to try. I think I mentioned last time that um, I probably speak too quickly, but I feel like that will be to my benefit this time around. Letter rip. It's not going to be good when I have to transcribe it later, but for now, <laughs> for trying to fit it into 30 seconds, it will do me a world of good. All right. Are you ready? <sighs> yes. On your mark, get set, go. Okay, so Colonel Brandon comes with the absolute bombshell that his supposed love child is actually his niece from his former lover who then became his sister-in-law that was a whole mess his niece ran off with willoughby when he was supposed to be going with them to the party thing willoughby got her pregnant has a secret love child and eleanor tells all this to marianne marianne is still sad the steels come the dashwoods come they're all awful to eleanor they have a really awful party everybody sucks um and then marianne and edward and eleanor and lucy have an awkward conversation oh there's so much how do you put it in 30 seconds Oh, that was that was my best attempt. All right, Emily, are you ready? We've got a lot of plot details to sum up in 30 seconds. Are you up to the task? I guess we're about to find out. <laughs> I'm trying to be a little more optimistic because I, I've been a complete downer about my ability to sum this up. <laughs> and each time episodes. you pretty much get it, so. Uh, pretty much. Thanks. 
Thanks for no, the qualifier. That wasn't meant to be shady. <laughs> Are you ready? Mm-hmm. And go. Willoughby is getting married. Marion is depressed. Colonel Brandon shows up and tells Eleanor the true story of his niece who got pregnant by Willoughby. And then everybody else is there. The Steels love Edward's mother. And there's just a lot of socialization. And Marianne is very upset the whole time. And I still have four seconds. And (laughs) I have nothing else left to say. There you go. (laughs) That may be the most chaotic set of recaps we've had to date. Yeah, perhaps. But I I also feel like... If there's ever the question like, oh, what roles do you fall into? I feel like I'm always the chaos side and you're the calm side, like keeping us on track so that those two... That's not how I ever feel. Really? I always feel like I'm chaotic and you have a level head. Oh, good. That means we balance each other out without even realizing it because I always feel like the chaos host where I'm just like, oh, thank God Emily's here because I would just go off the rails 100%. Uh, We both have our parts to play, whatever they may be. We don't know what they are, but we're playing them well. Mm Mm-hmm. evidently okay so will you start us off with just talking about your general reactions to this section they were many yeah so I I had many reactions wow I was not expecting the Willoughby backstory to be so skeevy yeah I have even more sympathy for Colonel Brandon than I did before. I like Lucy Steele even less. And my appreciation for Mrs. Jennings is also growing. Agreed. The one scene that we have with Mrs. Jennings and Marianne specifically, she accidentally upsets Marianne, but I feel like she is the type of person who you would want to have around you in a breakup because she strikes me as the type of person who regardless of her feelings for your past partner or love interest or whatever, would immediately change tack and be like, they were awful anyway. How could they do that to you? And just like be that railing against the former person that you need when you're like in the throes of pain and heartbreak. Like, yeah, they are awful. Yeah, I never loved them anyway. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah. And in this particular case, so what has happened is... That, of course, Marianne is in the throes of grief about Willoughby basically breaking up with her. And so Mrs. Jennings comes and says, oh, here, I have something that'll cheer you up. Here's a letter from your mother. It's not Mrs. Jennings' fault at all that the letter Mrs. Dashwood has sent is very badly timed and is essentially praising Willoughby. Mm -hmm. And she's still completely convinced that Marianne and Willoughby must be secretly engaged because she does not have the latest information so mrs jennings is doing her best she's really tried to support this poor girl in her home who's going through it Mm. she just happened to bring a letter that uh, did not help the situation and marianne was also hoping in her mind that it would be from willoughby and he would come to make everything right and apologize but the first sin is that the letter is not from willoughby and the second thing is that her mother is just extolling about Willoughby's virtues in part because Eleanor had written to her like can you help me try and figure out if Marianne and Willoughby are actually engaged and because communication doesn't move that quickly (laughs) her letter that Eleanor had solicited is just now reaching Marianne unfortunately with terrible timing for what's actually going on in her life just honestly tragic timing yeah 
But following this, of course, the news spreads that Willoughby is getting married to someone else and everybody in their immediate circle is ready to jump in and just give him a shit about being treating Marianne so badly. So then Colonel Brandon arrives and not only brings some new information about Willoughby, but also uncovers the truth behind the mystery of why he had left Barton Park so suddenly all those months before. Yeah, so not only does he have information about Willoughby, but he can also tell Eleanor a little bit more about why it was that he left and give some, um, throw some water on the idea or the rumor that he has a secret love child that he's been hiding from everyone. So um, he had mentioned to Eleanor chapters back that um, Marianne reminded him of a woman who he had known in the past. And it's very heavily implied that this was somebody who he had been in love with before, but we don't know who she is or what happened to her. So this young woman who has grown up in the same home as Colonel Brandon and his brother, who is the ward of their father, evidently has significant financial means. And so the father decides she's going to marry the eldest son. And so they're forcibly married, basically. Unhappily. Very unhappily. Um, And most of the discontent seems to be on the part of Eliza. Mm -hmm. Colonel Brandon reveals that within a couple of years of their marriage, Eliza is divorced from his brother. Which is super scandalous for the 19th century. Like, who Mm -hmm. got divorced? Yeah. And apparently she essentially became, you know, a fallen woman. Mm -hmm. She had several different affairs with various men. Apparently the first of these affairs resulted in a child out of wedlock, who is the mysterious Miss Williams. Mm -hmm. So it turns out that when Colonel Brandon returned from his post in the Indies and went to find his former sister-in-law, she was dying of tuberculosis and entrusted the care of her young daughter to him, which he seems to have taken very seriously. He provided for her education. When she left school, he placed her with a woman who was caring for, overseeing several other young girls as well. And then a few months before the Dashwoods arrived at Barton, Miss Williams had disappeared. Yeah, she went on a trip to Bath with one of the other girls, I believe, in the care of that woman. Colonel Brandon had let her go because he liked the young girl who she was going with and trusted that they would be in good hands when they went to Bath and wouldn't be unaccompanied and would be, you know, watched over and provided for. And then she just disappears out of nowhere. And the the friend was clearly in on it, but wouldn't say anything. And the dad had no idea what was happening, and so Miss um, Williams, the daughter, is just kind of MIA for eight months, and Colonel Brandon has no idea where she is. And then finally, on the day when he so abruptly departed from Barton, what happened was that he had received a letter from Miss Williams, and so he immediately left, found her pregnant and very close to giving birth, and basically just had to immediately deal with the situation but now very understandably 
holds a grudge against Willoughby because it was Willoughby who seduced this teenager, 17-year-old away from the protection of friends and family, uh, got her pregnant, said that he was going to come back, and then just dipped. Presumably not long before he met Marianne. Yeah, that's what the timeline seems to suggest. Mm-hmm. And um, it's also implied that, of course, because this is the 19th century and honor must be accounted for, that the first time that Colonel Brandon met Willoughby, he also demanded a duel, um, which both of them walked away unharmed from, which is why nobody knows about it. But Eleanor asks him, you know, like, have you seen Willoughby since then? Like, that must have been painful. And he was like, yes, out of necessity. But we both walked away unharmed. And Eleanor was just like, ugh, men. Honestly, like, as much as I'm generally a pacifist in that case like yeah brandon shoot him <laughs> what a scoundrel take that man to task mm-hmm. hopefully he is out of their lives forever i was trying, anyway i was trying to avoid looking at you because i don't want to be spoiled colonel brandon comes to tell eleanor all this information because he's hoping that eleanor can tell marianne and make her feel a little bit better um, because he knows that Eleanor can tell her the information in a way that's sensitive to the way that Marianne is feeling and also hopes that Marianne will then absorb all of this and realize that she dodged a bullet. Yeah, and Colonel Brennan also says that he had intended to share this information with Eleanor before, but the nature of the connection between Willoughby and Marianne was still unclear. Most people still believed that they were engaged, and so he ended up not telling Eleanor at that time but after the fallout he decided to share that and yeah I just (sighs) Brandon he's just he's just trying to do best by everybody I have lots to say about him later in the episode but other important events of note both um John Dashwood and our favorite hate club member Fanny Dashwood also come to London um the Steels also come to London and they have um a get-together, of course, um, because most of them are, like, all related somehow. Um, they make their introductions. People who haven't been acquainted become acquainted. And the biggest thing is that um, Edward Ferris's mother is in town, whom Eleanor has never met. And so then, of course, Lucy makes things super dramatic, like, oh, Eleanor, my dearest friend, you must feel bad for me because I'm so nervous because I'm going to meet the person who could become my mother-in-law. But the other bomb that is dropped during this episode is that Mrs. Ferrers is determined that he will marry Miss Morton, who is the daughter of a judge who has something like a fortune of 30,000 pounds, and that she will pay him to marry her 1,000 pounds per year. So Lucy's probably not looking so hot either. But Lucy has no idea, and Eleanor's not going to say anything. So she just lets Lucy prattle on about, oh, I'm going to meet my future mother-in-law. Won't you please pity me trying to make Eleanor feel guilty or envious or something? And Eleanor's just like, oh, honey, you don't even know. Yeah, Eleanor sees that she's just trying to make her jealous. Mm -hmm. And in a moment of absolute savagery, as they're going up to the Dashwoods' house, they're about to meet Mrs. Ferris for the first time. Lucy says, oh, Eleanor, pity me. I'm about to meet this woman who's going to be my mother. And (laughs) Eleanor just says that she does pity her. (laughs) I just cracked up like, yes, Eleanor. Don't give her anything. And that's that's all Lucy's dialogue is in these sections. It's just 
constantly prodding at Eleanor, trying to make her jealous or to vocalize her jealousy or to vocalize her envy, like something. Um, and Eleanor, to her credit, is able to keep her cool and not respond and not say anything. She struggles to be polite, but she doesn't like rise to the bait, which honestly makes her a better woman than me because I don't know if I would have had the patience. I really don't. And then even within the socialization, Mrs. Ferris is like giving Eleanor the cold shoulder because she knows that Edward has an attachment to Eleanor, which she doesn't want to go through because she wants him to marry this other super rich girl instead. Fanny Dashwood goes along with it because she doesn't like her husband's siblings anyway. And they're giving extra attention to Lucy, which Lucy takes as, oh, this is a preference for me, not knowing that Lucy's not even part of the conversation. Like, she is a nobody to them, but she's not Eleanor. Yeah, and I'm in her second moment of savagery, Eleanor basically says, if they knew that you were supposedly engaged to Edward, they would not be treating you this well. It's like, this is not evidence of you being accepted into the family because they don't know that you're engaged so you can't take it that way and then of course lucy tries to brush that off and is not happy about it but are there any other significant events that we need to make sure we cover before moving on edward comes to call on them at a time when lucy and eleanor are the only people in the drawing room and it's super awkward because then eleanor is the one who has to kind of direct the whole social interaction because edward is clearly like a deer in headlights and has no idea what to do lucy is still pretending like oh eleanor doesn't know so i can't be super obvious about my attachment with edward so she just says nothing in the corner stares at him lovingly the whole time either is staring at edward or is shooting daggers at eleanor who's trying to just keep this whole thing moving because nobody else is saying anything so eleanor's like yeah my mom is good yeah marianne is good thank you for asking giving him a look like hello can you help me in this conversation no It's just a train wreck. And then, of course, Eleanor goes to get Marianne and purposely (laughs) gives Lucy and Edward some extra time alone. But then when Marianne gets in the room, she still thinks that Edward and Eleanor have an attachment. And so she's just so effusive and she's so happy to see him. And it's, it's just disastrous all around. And then that makes Edward feel more awkward because he knows that he doesn't deserve any of that extra happy attention. And Marianne, bless her, is just like, ugh, at least there's somebody here who can make one of us happy, not realizing that he's making Eleanor miserable. What a section, honestly. Wait, somebody also is convinced that Colonel Brandon is in love with Eleanor. Who is it? John Dashwood, their John brother. Dash- right, which, like, I've said before, I think Brandon and Eleanor would be pretty cute. Mm. But also, I just want... I just want them to to be snark buds just want them to hang out and... i like their platonic relationship yeah, yeah they they have really good chemistry as friends let men and women be friends platonic relationships between genders are possible all right now that i think we have sufficient plot context let's talk about our overarching analytical theme of trauma and the idea of doing a trauma-informed reading Yeah, so the idea for this theme, or lens, whatever you'd like to call it, came from the idea of trauma-informed care or trauma-informed approach, which is um, something that you usually hear in like healthcare or social work settings. And the basic idea is that it assumes that an individual is more likely than not to have a history of trauma. And so it recognizes the presence of trauma symptoms and acknowledges the role that trauma might play in an individual's life. And the way that I heard it summed up that I thought was really helpful and also can help kind of guide 
this part of our discussion is that instead of asking what's wrong with this person, a trauma-informed approach or a trauma-informed question would be what happened to this person and what has happened in their past that might be causing them to act in this way, whether it's something that's obviously out of like grief or fear or just a mannerism that they've developed out of trauma. Yeah, I, I like that way of looking at it, especially because today with our general understanding of psychology, the way we tend to understand trauma is there being some big violent event that leaves you with something like PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. But that's not necessarily what trauma is. Even if we look at, for instance, the Dashwoods, what has happened to them? They have had to leave the only home they've known in their entire lives. Poor Marianne just now has been very rudely disabused of what seems to be her first love. And so it's not necessarily, you know, having having gone through a kind of violent act that is perpetrated upon someone, but I would even say something that just very sharply forces you to reorganize your view on life. Yeah, I was thinking about that because the first instance where we see something that could be easily related to trauma is Marianne, and I think that people underestimate relationship trauma if it's not physical and don't often take into account unless you or a loved one has experienced that how traumatizing like relationships can be whether there was some sort of like emotional abuse or not like the ending of a relationship can still be really traumatic and in Marianne's case she's been publicly humiliated because everybody thought that they were engaged within their social circle she found out that he was with someone else in a public setting, didn't even get the chance to learn that privately because they didn't have the good grace to tell her. So she just showed up to a party and was blindsided by this. In addition to that, she strikes me as a type of person who would say, oh, well, you only fall in love once and love is enough to conquer all. And, you know, if you really love each other, then everything always works. And that idea has just been violently removed from her very permanently. And that type of forced worldview shift can be really traumatic, especially because that's not just her worldview on love, that's her worldview on like life and humanity, and that's just been snatched away from her in a matter of minutes, and she has to deal with that in front of basically everyone she knows. We especially tend to minimize these kinds of traumas that don't manifest as things like physical abuse, which I think is part of the reason that a lot of people don't recognize the traumas in their own lives and mm -hmm. I'm speaking for myself here too because we think that trauma can only be you know a horrible car crash mm -hmm. you know watching someone you love die being in on an active battlefield things like that yeah I think we always default to well somebody else has had it so much worse so what right do I have to like the pain or the anguish that I might be feeling but that doesn't minimize the emotions that you're going through or the effect that they have on you just because it wasn't something that like everybody would universally recognize as clearly traumatic doesn't mean that it wasn't traumatic yeah and with our modern understanding of psychology i think we're coming to realize more and more that everything in our lives leaves some kind of psychological impact and that's something that at this point in history when jane austen was writing that wasn't 
really recognized. Psychology was a very different field at that time. For one thing, it was still sort of in the wake of the Enlightenment considered to be a subset of philosophy. It wasn't really a medical field. It was treated very differently depending on the circumstance of the patient and of the person making the diagnosis. So for one thing, they didn't have the kind of technology that we have now. So any kind of diagnosis could only be made based on observable behaviors. But then also there was nothing resembling a standardized psychological or psychiatric practice. There was no DSM. There was no DSM. There was no understanding of neuroscience, you know, our the way that we currently conceptualize like oh i need serotonin or dopamine or whatever that that kind of neurochemical understanding didn't exist and so any kind of appearance of mental illness could be attributed to causes that were physical or emotional or even moral or spiritual it really just depended on who when where this happened and to a pretty significant extent, I, I think that's still the case. Um, we've seen more explicit reports in recent years of, for instance, the medical community just completely misunderstanding uh, the way that people of different races experience pain. Mm-hmm. There are doctors out there who think that black people have a massively higher tolerance for pain than white people and that stems directly from racist pseudo-medical writing of the past centuries. It is stunning to me how texts that were written long before any of us were alive have influenced the medical field to the point where black people are still receiving substandard care today because there are medical students who say like oh, well, I actually thought that, like, black people couldn't feel as much pain. Who will come into medical schools in the 21st century and say that completely in earnest because that's what they were taught? That's horrifying to me. Both then and now, we end up begging the question of what counts as a traumatic event Mm -hmm. and who's given the privilege of being believed when they say that something was traumatic. And who is thought as hysterical or blowing something out of proportion. Speaking of hysteria, one of the things that I noticed in this section is that Marianne isn't treated as hysterical. Like, she's actually treated with care by the other people around her because they understand why she's upset and that she has a reason to be upset. One of the things that's important when you are, like, trying to support or relate to somebody who's been going through a traumatic event is first just to acknowledge that it happened in the first place instead of trying to convince them that it wasn't traumatic or it wasn't that bad is like seeing pain and acknowledging it goes such a long way and I I think it was a deviation from what you would expect or how you would expect women to be treated like the people around her don't say oh it's fine you'll get over it like you've had a little little drama in your love life now you can find somebody who will be your forever person they recognize like no this is incredibly painful and what he did was wrong and you have the right to be upset and to want to just hide away in your room and not speak to any of us. And we get it. Yeah, I think it's sort of a, a first instinct for people trying to support someone who's going through a traumatic event, especially when it's something that has to do with like interpersonal relationships, mm-hmm. is to try and minimize the amount of pain they appear to be feeling. But a lot of us default to saying, oh, you're going to be fine. This is for the best. When really 
what you need to do to some extent is just to indulge that and say, yeah, you're really hurting right now. This is a really horrible thing that happened to you. That's something that I've noticed myself falling into in the past, either when relating to other people or to myself is like a need to constantly be positive. And I've had to actively work against that because sometimes positivity isn't what you need. You just need to be miserable. And somebody in your ear constantly trying to make you be positive is actually making things a lot worse. It's not making anything better. Um, and Catharsis is yeah. such a thing. You know, when, when you find yourself sad and you're putting on more sad music, sometimes you really just need to like sob it out. Just lean into it. It's literally like completing the stress cycle. Like your body needs to be sad and to continue feeling those emotions for you to feel better. And like doing nothing about it doesn't help. But speaking of people who just kind of hold everything in and don't talk about it for forever. Let's talk about Colonel Brandon and the trauma that he's clearly gone through and how he apparently hasn't spoken about this for 14 years. He has so many layers of trauma going back so many years. For one, he was forcibly separated from this woman that he cared about very much when they were both quite young. Mm -hmm. She was married to his brother and he basically fucked off to the indies with the military he took that commission on purpose because he thought that being separated would be better for both of them and he makes the point as well to eleanor when he's telling the story is that he says to her you know you might not be able to tell from my disposition now but like i was really passionately in love with her and it just goes to show how much all these events have changed him and the people around him the same group of people have supported Marianne through like these difficult times and have been really understanding but they're more likely to kind of poke fun at Colonel Brandon for being quiet for being uptight for being reserved and now we understand and he's had to build up like this emotional armor because he was so deeply hurt before so of course he's quiet and reserved because that's what he's learned to be that's what he's had to be I mean he was actively punished for trying to act on his passions before with trying to elope Mm -hmm. with Eliza and his father kept them apart yeah so there's there's a lot going on there and then of course when he finally finds her again she's on the brink of death Mm -hmm. which I mean it's traumatic in itself to witness something like that especially with someone that you have known and loved for so long Mm -hmm. and basically what's a debtor's prison And that's the first time he's seen her in years. And then she, in however little time she has before she dies, remands her three-year-old daughter to his care. So he's unexpectedly found the woman that he's loved for so long. She dies horribly, and now he's essentially a parent to this young child that he doesn't know who has been born from trauma, Mm -hmm. essentially and can't fully explain to other people why he cares so much about this little girl who he says is a distant relation but who he knows that people are making their own theories and making up rumors about and that's its own little trauma is not being able to own the relationship and having to keep that secret i imagine as well that it's re-traumatizing when clearly he really cares about this girl you know i i have complicated feelings and people say that like people's children are like the only things they have left of that person because they're not something that somebody else left behind like they're their own independent human being but I can imagine that he would feel a special connection to her because 
she's the daughter of this woman who he loved so much and he's not able to fully express that either we've already seen that he doesn't really express full emotion anymore because one of his trauma responses is just not to do that but also can't communicate to other people why it is that he feels so much affection for this person because he's still trying to protect Eliza the woman who he loved yeah it wouldn't even reflect badly on him for Mm -mm. him to tell the truth but he's so protective of Eliza's reputation even now so many years after she fell into disgrace he doesn't want to impart that kind of ill repute onto her and so he's taken on that reputation by proxy just letting people think that young eliza miss williams is his daughter born out of wedlock because he's he's not going to smear the late eliza's reputation that way and he also clearly knows that it doesn't really hurt him socially at all it's just a running joke, but nobody's going to shun him for having a love child because that's more expected of men, but it's a death knell for women to have. Yeah, and then on top of all this, his adopted daughter has dropped off the face of the earth mm-hmm. exactly like her mother did. And then when she resurfaces, she is pregnant out of wedlock. And it's not only fresh trauma, but dredging up the scars of what would have happened so many years before when her own mother dropped off the face of the earth Mm -hmm. and had a child out of wedlock by a man who abandoned her. But then not only that, but in the midst of those eight months, he's finally let himself begin caring for somebody again, who reminds him so much of the woman who he lost. Doesn't say anything about it because he can see that she's so clearly attached to this person. And then when the adoptive daughter resurfaces, she's pregnant by the same man who the woman who he has grown to care for is apparently engaged to. Brandon is just going through it. I mean, <laughs> the poor man. Just I I want to give him a hug and a therapist. He's got a lot to unpack in some therapy he sessions. Needs some compassion. Oh Good man, Lord. And this it increases Eleanor's esteem for him, but I think also the reader gets such a better understanding of just who he is as a person and as a character and where he's coming from and. We had no reason to think badly of him before. Mm -mm. He he seems like a completely decent person if, you know, quiet and reserved. But now we know, at least we assume we know the full extent of this just stoic nobility and the duty that he feels to do right by the people in his life Mm -hmm. who are explicitly relying on him. And I can only imagine the depth of guilt that he must feel even though he he was not responsible for his ward being seduced away by a bad man he seems like the kind of person who would entirely blame himself for this for not protecting her 100 percent, he would put it on himself somehow and that's one of the things that i was thinking about i think one of the things that comes up more recently now that we're having these conversations about mental health and now that more people are open about going to therapy is people having the sometimes uncomfortable realization of oh how much of my personality is innate and how much of my personality is a trauma response and looking at how much is the personality of Colonel Brandon that we see is what's natural to him and how much is his response to all the traumas that have happened in his life over just the past 
15 years because it's very heavily implied that when he was younger, this wasn't his personality at all. Eleanor seems to have always been kind of the reserved, quiet person, and that's just kind of naturally how she is. Colonel Brandon, not so much. I'm just, I'm so sad for him. Me too. And one of the things for trauma-informed approaches as well, the biggest thing that I think you get from that is greater empathy. And I think for Colonel Brandon, it's really easy to extend empathy. But then I was trying to extend that to other characters in this section. Like Lucy was working my last nerve. I was like, why are you so fixated on making Eleanor envious and making her continue to be miserable? And then I was asking myself, okay, well, if I'm going to use that approach or that question, has Lucy been made to feel unwanted? What happened in her past to where this is her response to Eleanor all the time? Like, does she need to feel validated all the time for a different reason? And then I could have more empathy for Lucy. It's like, okay, well, there might be a reason to what you're doing and I might not like it and it might come off as really abrasive, but maybe there's a different underlying reason for why you're doing what you're doing. Something that came to mind as I was doing the historical research for this was the idea of individual versus collective trauma. And that's something that we can certainly relate back to our earlier episode on gender. Really, regardless of class, at this point in history, every woman was operating on a certain level of collective gender-based trauma Mm -hmm. just because of the way that their position was circumscribed in society. It's like, maybe we should extend a little empathy to Fanny, you know, I guess. Not for Fanny. (laughs) Fanny gets no sympathy. <laughs> I was looking for a reason to redeem her because I was like, maybe we're being too hard in this one character. Like, it's funny, but, and I still, I have nothing. She came from money into more money, and she's just, she's always looking out for number one. I really tried. It's the Fanny Dashwood Hate Club. Yeah. <laughs> we made the right call on that one. That was, that was an easy call at the beginning. <laughs> so, did you have a pop culture connection for our trauma-informed reading this is it's really heavy topic but you uh, know i was worried that i was going to struggle but i actually do have a pop culture connection for this awesome tell me about it i mean not awesome because trauma (laughs) but i i'm i'm eager to hear how you've connected it to modern media well it is small perhaps but i think it is notable and the biggest parallel that i saw is how colonel brandon is ned stark from game of thrones Oh. So if you have not watched Game of Thrones, beware that I'm about to spoil one of the big endgame things for you from like season seven. So if you've watched through season six, you're fine. If you've not seen season seven or eight, skip ahead because I will spoil you. So if you don't want to be spoiled, this is your warning. In Game of Thrones, Ned Stark is the patriarch of the Stark family, who was very quickly set up as the protagonist of like the whole show, the good guys who are meant to root for. And Ned has five legitimate children with his wife, but he also has Jon Snow, who's also one of the protagonists of the TV show. And so for most of the show, we believe that Jon Snow is Ned Stark's son. You know, he has a different surname because bastard children weren't able to take the name of their father. John is always treated as somebody who's kind of on the outside, but he doesn't know who his mother is, and Ned doesn't tell him. And in their last interaction, before they go their separate ways and Ned Stark is eventually killed, Ned says, you know, the next time we meet, I'll tell you about your mother. But of course, that never happens. And so what turns out is that similar to how Colonel Brandon had taken in basically his niece and had provided for her and basically taken on the shame from Eliza as his own, Jon Snow was never actually 
Ned Stark's son. Um, he was Ned Stark's nephew. Ned's sister, Lyanna, had been secretly married to one of the people from the royal family. She had Jon Snow and then promptly died. But before she died in childbirth, had made Ned promise, like, please take care of my son. And because Ned's best friend was currently fighting against the royal family for the throne, and his new nephew was technically a Targaryen who would have had more rights to the throne, he can never actually say who that was. And similar to how Colonel Brandon kind of just takes on that shame, Ned Stark lets everybody believe that the Honorable Ned Stark had a love child during the war and brought him home. And he just lets everybody talk about him. And it's like, no, it's fine, because I know why I'm doing this. And I know that this is what honor looks like for me, because I'm protecting this other person who's no longer here, like both protecting Lyanna and protecting John, his nephew. So this is also my unofficial application to have a reboot of the Sense and Sensibility film adaptation and have Sean Bean be in a role where he doesn't have to die. So... <laughs> Colonel Beanden. Yeah, yes. <laughs> oh, that is a really fascinating pop culture connection, though, with Game of Thrones, because that that didn't occur to me at all. Not to mention, Game of Thrones is just trauma smorgasbord. Oh yes, every single one of those characters is traumatized. Oh my god, in so many ways. Honestly, Game of Thrones is trauma porn. Y- yeah. In Sense and Sensibility, we can sympathize quite easily with the traumatic events that these characters have been through but game of thrones is just like okay but what if we made it worse purely for the shock value basically mm-hmm. which we could also critique in modern media yeah there are many things about game of thrones that i would like to critique but that's a different podcast shall we do final takeaways let's do final takeaways emily what are your final takeaways my final takeaway is similar to i think what we said in the past that there's always nuance to a situation but also some people are just horrible (laughs) okay that's my takeaway some people just suck what about you hopefully it's more nuanced than mine well what i was going to say is that my final takeaway is that we should all have more patience with one another because we don't know what is in their past that they might be constantly responding to or what caused them to respond the way that we did and there's no way for us to know unless they disclose that to us and they're probably not going to. And I, that's that's a reminder that I have to have for myself sometimes too because I think that I can be impatient with people or quick to form a snap judgment. And I think this has been a good exercise in having more patience and empathy for other people. I think that's a, a good lesson to draw from us. Mm-hmm. So sorry, Lucy Steele. That will be nicer to you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Reclaiming Jane. Next time, for a change of pace, we'll be reading chapters 36 through 40 of Sense and Sensibility through the lens of joy. To read a full transcript of this episode, check out our website, reclaimingjanepod.com, where you can also find show notes and links to all of our social media. If you'd like to support us and help us create more content, you can join our Patreon at Reclaiming Jane Pod or leave us a review on iTunes. Reclaiming Jane is produced and co-hosted by Lauren Weathers and Emily Davis-Hale. Our music is by Latasha Bundy, and our show art is by Emily Davis-Hale. We'll see you next time. Yeah, I think about hysteria all the time, because that's one of those fun little things you learn in, you know, Psych 101, really for centuries, and up until 
the modern age, the uterus and its misbehavior was blamed for basically anything that could be pointed out as being wrong with a woman. If she was depressed, if she was acting promiscuous, well, her her womb was wandering. It's that darn and, uterus. Yeah, it's, it's that darn uterus. And the cure is to get married and get pregnant, because that'll put your uterus literally back in its place, and then you'll be fine. Which is, for the record, insane. That is not based on anything scientifically sound. We do not endorse the hysteria theory of psychology. <laughs> Just the concept of a wandering uterus, like the mental image of that is so funny. Wandering where? Do you know how many internal organs we have? Where is it going? It's just just hanging out wherever it was. <laughs> it's like an octopus. It just squeezes through whatever little opening. It's like, yeah, I'm, I'm just going to hang out by your lungs now. Right. MBD. I was just going to say, I'm just going to hang out by the heart today. You know, just have a little emotional, little gathering, little hangout session.